0: Villa's Grace Church, building relationships that make followers of Jesus. Know, grow, go, to know Him, to grow in Him, to go with Him. We are still in our sermon series. John, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are gathered this morning to worship you. We just pray that the remainder of our time this morning as we proclaim your word, your truth, we allow your Holy Spirit who lives within us to convict us in a way that leads us back to you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who makes all things possible. Amen. Let's just pretend for a moment you have a magical piggy bank. Most of us grew up with a piggy bank. Most of us can relate to having one, but let's just pretend that everybody here has a magical piggy bank and every single day there is $86,400 deposited into your piggy bank. I'm being serious, each and every day. Now, with this being deposited into your piggy bank, there is a catch, however. The remaining balance from the $86,400 does not carry over day to day. Therefore, therefore, you will have to spend all 86400 each and every day. And whatever you do not spend at the end of that day, quite simply will just go to waste. You don't spend it, you lose it. So the question is, what would you do? If you had this magical piggy bank and 86400 was placed into your piggy bank each and every day, what would you do? Well, you'd probably do the smart thing and you would basically withdraw every last cent each and every day and use the money to your advantage. Now, do you know what you would name your little piggy bank? The name of this piggy bank that you actually have is called time. We each only get 86,400 seconds each and every day. And every night, every second wasted is actually deducted from the ledger balance of our little bank. There's no carryover balance, no overdraft. You lose each second you failed to invest towards good Purpose. The next day, 86,400 seconds are deposited back into your magical little piggy bank. And if you fail to use the deposited seconds, the loss is yours. There's absolutely no going back. Therefore, placing the loss squarely upon your own shoulders. Brothers and sisters, the sin of our pride would actually create a Another dilemma for us, though, even if we don't spend all of these seconds that we get each and every day wisely, we'd be challenged to believe in this other dilemma that each second we're actually somehow our own. We would pridefully believe the time allotted to us is actually our time. It's not our time. It's God's time. The 86,400 seconds we've been allotted belong to him. He's determined when to give each second. He's determined how many of each second to give. And he's determined the best use of every second given. No one understood this better than Jesus himself. And this brings us to the title of our sermon this morning. God's time. God's time. We're going to be in... The Gospel of John chapter 7, looking at verses 1 through 13. But before we do that this morning, we must remember that last week we finished John chapter 6, where the many who had been following Jesus chose to discontinue in their following of Him. The many were those who were fickle, they were inconsistent with their faith. And that's the reason why they chose to quit following Him, because of their fickleness The remaining disciples, however, were faithful. They were consistently faithful, and that's the reason why they continued to follow Jesus. Remember, we heard this last week from Jesus himself. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to leave also, do you? And what did Simon Peter say? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have what? The words of eternal life. The faithful understood that it's about their life to come, not their life now. Today, it's all about God's time and God's timing. So pay attention this morning when you hear things like this from Jesus. You're going to hear Jesus say, my time is not yet here, but your time is already. See, it's God's time according to His timing. The only thing that concerns us is what we do with the 86,400 seconds that He's allotted to each one of us each and every day. Let's go ahead and get into this text and see exactly where it is we're coming from, starting in chapter 7, verse 1 through 13. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of Booths, was near. So his brothers said to him, Move on from here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself is striving to be known publicly. If you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is already. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I am not going up to the feast because my time has not yet fully arrived. Now, having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as though in secret. So the Jews who were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was a great deal of talk about him in secret among the crowds. Some were saying, He's a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he is misleading the people. However, no one was speaking openly about him for fear of the Jews. Amen. As we look at these verses this morning, we're going to put them into these or this one sentence that becomes our main idea, and that sentence states this, abiding by God's time leads to discipleship and salvations. That's what we're seeing in these 13 verses this morning. Abiding by God's time leads to discipleship and salvations, because that's precisely what Jesus was doing. He was abiding by God's time, because he knew it wasn't his time, and when he fell in line according to God's time and subjected himself to the timing of the Lord, discipleships happened and salvations happened. So as we look at verse 1 this morning, we we must remember something. The, The world itself believes that historical events are coincidental. The world believes that history actually plays out randomly. In fact, the world believes that the only thing predictable in life is karma which we know isn't true. Those who have saving faith in Jesus actually believe otherwise because we believe that historical events happen for a multitude of reasons. Not just one reason, but a multitude of reasons. We believe that history has purpose. In fact, we believe that history verifies his story of eternal life. I always find that interesting. We call it history But really, it's his story. This is God's story of redemption. As history verifies God's purposeful, perfect plan, his purposeful, perfect plan is actually revealed to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which reads. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, it's interesting right there because it says, God causes. God causes. Only a mighty God can have this type of control. Not only of the past, but of the present and of the future. God can cause what he wants to have happen. Brothers and sisters, take comfort then in his purpose. John Calvin says this as it pertains to God's purpose and his will and his timing. Though the elect and the reprobate are indiscriminately exposed to similar evils, there is a Yet a great difference. For God trains up the faithful by afflictions and thereby promotes their salvation. Again, take comfort in His purpose. Only a mighty God can control the past. Only a mighty God can control the present. And only a mighty God can control the future. Whereas our adversary is living in the past is stuck in the present and the past alike because of one simple reason. The reason why he's living and stuck in the present and the past is because our adversary, unlike us, does not have a future. God causes all things to work together for good. See, this reminds me of Lewis Braille. See, Braille's father was a shoemaker. Shoemakers utilized this tool called an awl. It's spelled A-W-L. The awl is actually a sharp tool. It's used to poke holes into the leather. And one day, Louis Braille was messing around on his dad's workbench, and the awl fell down and pierced him in one of his eyes. In fact, the injury was so severe, not only did he go blind in the eye that the all fell in, but it also blinded his other eye. The injury was so bad that Braille ended up having to go to a special school because he spent the remainder of his life blind. And in this school, they actually taught him how to read by using these carved wooden blocks which actually wasn't the most efficient way to read so in adulthood Braille having had this experience because of this all falling into his eye created a new way for the blind to read long story short Louis Braille invented Braille brothers and sisters Remember those words of John Calvin. What did he say? God trains up the faithful by afflictions and thereby promotes their salvation. See, if it wasn't for such a horrific accident, we wouldn't have Braille today. Again, God causes all things to work together for good. And the good that we're talking about this morning is our future. The good that we're talking about is our salvation. God causes all things to work together for good. So as we go back to verses one through four, we must understand that Jesus knew better than anyone that God is fully in control. He understood this. And as we begin verse one, it starts off by saying after these things, this is after the many who had chosen not to follow him anymore. He had this large crowd that was following him that we went over these last few chapters in the Gospel of John, and now they are no longer following him. This is after he was left with only his 12 disciples. Now, we could probably say 11 because we know Judas Iscariot was part of the 12, but we're still going to call the 12, the 12 for the sake of not confusing anybody. This is also after a six-month gap between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. See, John's Gospel here, is not an exhaustive recording of all the historical events that happened. There's a six-month gap by the end of chapter 6 going into chapter 7. And we know that this is true when we allow the Bible to interpret the Bible because we look at Matthew 16, 17, and 18, and we understand that this six-month gap was actually used by Jesus to do something that we saw in our main idea this morning. See, Jesus used the six-month gap to spend quality time with his disciples in order to disciple his disciples. The fact that he spent two days with 20,000, remember coming off the feeding of the thousands, which we could estimate would be upwards of 20,000 people that he fed? Coming off of that, and then he has six months and Spends it with his 12? This should tell us something. Two days with 20,000, then he spends six months with only 12. Do you know what this tells us? See, I believe when we see this account here in John, it tells us that Jesus was far more concerned with discipleship than he was with drawing a large crowd. In fact, his final words and... It, This comes from Matthew 28, which is where we get the go portion of our "no grow, go here at Villa's Grace. What does he say? Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When someone asks me what I do for a living, there's usually a follow-up question. It usually never fails. They'll ask me what I do for a living. They may ask Pastor Jared or Pastor Steve. And then once we tell them what we do, The next question that usually gets asked, I'm not saying it's always asked, but usually gets asked, and that question is this. How big is your church? I want to give you a quote from John MacArthur that actually pertains to that. He says this, Discipleship must also be the priority of the church. The Lord did not commission the church to attract large crowds, but to go and make Disciples, brothers and sisters, we have got to be a church that's defined by discipleship. So, some of you may be wondering, how do we even define discipleship? You're telling us that we need to be a church that that's defined by discipleship, but I'm sitting here and I have no idea how to even define the word discipleship to begin with. Well, it's quite simple. Discipleship defined is to follow someone with the hope of becoming what they are. To follow someone with the hope of becoming what they are. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, follow me as I follow the example of Christ. Now, Jesus was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him, as it says. This is also our first indication that Jesus fully understood the importance of God's time. This is where we start seeing how important God's time truly is because we see Jesus and his response to God's timing. Jesus came, as we all know, to die for the sin of the world. So why would he be so scared of the Jews? He came to die for the sin of the world. But now it's saying he's not going to go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So what we can ascertain from this is this. He wasn't avoiding the Jewish leader's intentions. That's not what he was doing. He was simply abiding by God's time. Now, the Feast of Booths, in which his brothers were trying to get him to go to, represented Jewish ancestry coming out of Egypt. They would build these little huts made out of sticks, and it signified their coming out of their Slavery in Egypt when they were in exile. It was the most widely attended of all the Jewish festivals. That's what we know from the recorded history. There was more Jews that went and participated in the Feast of Booths than any other feast that the Jews would put on, which is why his brothers say this here. They say, his brothers said to him, move on from here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. See, these are words from his actual half-brothers. He's not talking about his brothers in faith. He's talking to his half-brothers. He's talking to James, who was birthed by Mary. Joseph, who was birthed by Mary. Simon, who was birthed by Mary. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas, who was birthed by Mary. They wanted him to perform miracles for all to see. Now, I just want to back up for, for one quick moment here and explain to you why it is we know that these are his half-brothers because there are faiths there are religions that teach that Jesus didn't have any brothers there are faiths there are religions that actually teach that Mary was perfect throughout her whole life was only impregnated by the Holy Spirit never fornicated with Joseph and then died perfectly but we know this isn't true And this is the reason why we read the Bible in context, because if you just go back to a few verses that we covered last week, you would realize really quickly that Jesus is actually talking to his half-brothers. I'm going to go back. This won't be on the screen, but I'm looking at verse 66 from last week where it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So then what we remember Jesus said to them, and he said this to the 12, his disciples, You do not want to go away also, do you? Now Simon Peter, not his brother Simon, Simon Peter responded by saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. So Jesus, when he's speaking to the twelve, they're showing that they have saving faith in Jesus. They believe. What do we see here? And it's ironic, or the rhetoric they actually share in verse 4 reveals their misunderstanding of his whole mission because his half-brothers didn't understand his mission to the level in which his disciples did. What does it say? For no one does anything in secret when he himself is striving to become known publicly. If you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. See, they wanted him to show himself to the world. And this is because they still doubted his messianic claims. They were his half-brothers. And in their defense, could you imagine if one of your siblings was the Messiah? How would you respond? Do you think you would be a latecomer to the party to believing as well? I mean, after all, you've known this person your whole entire life. So as we move on to verses 6 through 9, now our our sermon's namesake actually comes from verse 6. My time is not yet here. As we've already stated, Jesus came to die for the sin of the world. That's been established throughout the Gospels. However, the Feast of Booths was not His time. In fact, it was the next feast, which was Passover, that would signal God's time for Him to die for said sin. But in the meantime, Jesus took advantage of His 86,400. He spent the coming months Ministering in Judea as he abided by God's time to enter Jerusalem during Passover. Now, do you notice the contrast here? Because there is a clear contrast. And we need to point this out. It says, Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is already. What does he mean by that? See, They didn't abide by God's time like Jesus abided by God's time. Remember, for not even his brothers, what, believed. That's also how we know these are Jesus' half-brothers. His disciples already said, no, you have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? But his actual half-brothers, who he's related to, as it says here, for not even his brothers believed. And at this point, they didn't have saving faith. They didn't yet believe in God's purposeful, perfect plan for salvation. So of course their time is always ready. Anybody who doesn't have saving faith in Jesus, their time is always ready. They're still part of this unbelieving world that says things like historical events or a coincidence. History plays out randomly. The only thing predictable is karma. Which is why the world cannot hate them, as it says here in the text. How could the world hate somebody that thinks like that? If you think history is random, if you think history is a coincidence, if you think the only thing that's predictable is karma, the world cannot hate you. That's the world's perspective. See, the world hated Jesus because he effectively used his 86,400 each and every day. And he used every last one to testify, as it says, about the world that what? Its deeds are evil. Brothers and sisters, the world should hate us too. The world should hate us. The world should hate us when we effectively use our 86,400 to testify against the world. We should expect the animosity associated with antagonism. Now, how should we then effectively use our 86,400 to testify that the world's deeds are evil? One recommendation I would not recommend would be for you to get a bullhorn and go out publicly telling people that they're going to hell unless they repent. Is that true? Yes. But is that the most effective way for us to use our 86,400 each and every day? No, it's not. So then how can we effectively use the 86,400 that we've been allotted? I would say the answer to that question is discipleship. In fact, right here at VG, you can participate in discipleship any number of ways. You can do it through life groups. You can do it through the ladies of grace. You can do it through the men of grace. You can do it by playing softball. Anything that puts us in fellowship with one another. Now, the one thing I want to encourage you this morning, because I know some of you are thinking this, but do not be intimidated. Do not be discouraged with the thought of, I have no idea how to disciple somebody. See, we're all at different stages with our walk with the Lord. It's all a personal, individual relationship with Him. As we continue to walk with the Lord, we can fellowship with others and teach them to follow Jesus as we follow Jesus, or as Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus, but you'll never be able to do that unless you get involved. We have opportunities here for you to start taking advantage of the 86,400 seconds that the, God, that the Lord has given you to use each and every day. Now, I'd like to draw your attention into verse 8 just for a moment here. Jesus said, go up to the feast yourselves. I'm not going up to this feast because my time has not fully arrived. Next, we're going to recognize that Jesus actually did go to the feast, but he's not lying. See, he was not actually contradicting himself to his brothers. That's not what we're seeing here. See, it's the end of verse 8 where he says, my time has not fully arrived. That reveals as much... By him saying that, we realize that Jesus is not contradicting himself. He wasn't going on their terms because their terms were not according to God's time. Again, just like the crowd of many before his half-brothers, what did they want? They wanted that king for the moment. They wanted somebody that could take care of their temporal, basic needs. But his true disciples, as Simon Peter revealed understood that Jesus was more than that because Jesus has the words of eternal life again what does it say the world cannot hate you Jesus said that right after all by going on their terms the Jewish leaders would have actually killed Jesus and that's the reason why Jesus wasn't going to go Because they wanted Him to come and show off what He was doing so people would follow Him, but they would be following Him for the wrong reasons. They wouldn't be following Him as it led to eternal life. They would be following Him for what they thought that He could give them for their life here and now. And as we progress now to verses 10 through 13, we recognize that this is true specifically in verse 11. Because the Jews were really the Jewish leaders Which correlates with John as we went through a couple weeks ago in chapter 5 verse 18 where it said, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. And this is why verse 13 says that no one was speaking openly about him. See, they didn't want to mention the name of a man that the Jewish leaders were trying to kill. Because if they would have spoken up about who Jesus was, they would have been banished from the synagogue. That'd be like you saying you're a Christian and then speaking up about who Jesus is and then all of a sudden you're no longer allowed at church anymore. Now, we understand that this crowd wasn't saved. Up until this point, we only know for sure that his disciples are saved because they said that he has the words of eternal life. And our clue for this is in what they said about him in verse 12. Verse 12 tells us that the rest of this crowd that we're dealing with here in this account, Wasn't in fact saved. It says, and there was a great deal of talk about him in secret among the crowds. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he is misleading the people. See, portraying Jesus as a good man is actually selling Jesus short. Good men do not claim to be God. Let's not kid ourselves. It's obvious by the secondary statement that they're not saved. What did did they say? He is misleading the people. Magicians practice the art of deception. Jesus, on the other hand, performed miracles that were verified, the authenticity of his message on eternal life. That's precisely what we see Jesus doing. Everything. Leads to eternal life. The gospel always reminds us of our future hope, which is eternal life. So, as Joe comes up and joins me, we wrap up this morning. We need to be encouraged that Jesus abided by God's time perfectly, He carried out God's will by Efficiently using the 86,400 seconds allotted to him by the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we can be encouraged to do the same. And we need to understand that it all begins with discipleship. Jesus was not concerned with drawing large crowds, he was concerned with discipling his disciples. If Jesus didn't utilize God's time towards discipleship, you wouldn't be hearing the gospel today. A crowd of many dwindled down to only 12. Six months discipling the 12 has led to the salvation of many. I want to say that again. Jesus' six months of discipling the 12 has led to the salvation of many. Of many. Those of us who have saving faith in Jesus have benefited from Jesus' discipleship of those 12. So the question for us is this How many salvations could the Lord produce through us if we just effectively used God's time to disciple one individual? Opportunities are there. Opportunities here at Villa's Grace are there for you to fellowship with others, to show them how to follow you as you follow Jesus. And this is the reason why we said this this morning about all of these verses that we looked at. Abiding by God's time leads to discipleship and salvations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We want to be a church that is truly focused on discipleship. Lord, I pray that we can encourage one another towards you. We can hold each other accountable in our pursuit to be discipled. Lord, I want to pray for us in the remaining time that we have this morning in our fellowship. I pray that we have safe travels as we leave here this morning. And ultimately, Lord... We always pray. Use us so we can share our faith with others, so we can see you work through salvation. We pray all of this in the name that makes it possible, Jesus himself. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, look us up on our website, www.villasgrace.com or drop us a line via email, connect at villasgrace.com dot com